The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Good morning, everyone. Some of you aren't feeling like it's such a good morning, losing that hour of sleep. Anyone bothered by that right now? Anyone struggling a little bit? Yeah? Yeah? Uh, <laughs> I don't know why we do this to ourselves, but uh, I'm going to uh, preach from the Word today, hopefully a, a message that, that wakes us up a little bit and that sets our hearts and our affections on God because He is he's worthy. He's worthy of our praise and adoration. He is worthy of it all, even when we uh, are not feeling 100% after taking an hour out of our lives somehow. Um, today, we are going to talk about something pretty contentious. Before we get there, though, this uh, weekend, we had a women's retreat at the church, and, and my wife came home from it yesterday evening and just was just really excited about um, the, the ministry that happened over this weekend. And I got to tell you, I love this church, and I am so grateful uh, for the, the, the men and women who serve all over this church. I think about uh, those that have been pouring their lives into women's ministry over the last couple of years. We have, have had amazing women leading our women's ministry for so long. And I, it's scary to try to name names because it's going to be a big fail on my part when I leave someone out. But I'm so grateful for Kirsten Mounts and Lori Lopez and Susan Wyant and... Um, and Lisa Marie Cook, and, and these, these women that have just poured themselves into uh, this ministry that is healthy and strong and bearing fruit and, and just a, a vibrant community, that is not normal. Like, that's not, that doesn't happen by default. It's, it's something unusual. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in our church that we have healthy ministries that bear fruit. I'm just so, so grateful for that. And so thank you if you're here or you're not here, you're listening online or whatever it is. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And uh, I just pray that the Lord continues to give us that kind of fruitful ministry as a church. I said this uh, a moment ago. Today we're going to be talking about one of the most divisive, contentious, controversial aspects of all of church life. In many uh, churches around the world, debates about this issue have been really vigorous. Sides have been chosen. Camps have been made. Battles have been waged. Yes, I'm talking about music. If you're new to the world of, of Christianity and, and new to church, this is an, an unfortunate reality. You might be surprised by this, but, but the music department of churches has often been referred to as the war room, the war room, because of the strong opinions, traditions, preferences, and personalities of those involved. How many of you have strong opinions about worship music? Yeah? Yeah. You don't have to raise your hands. I know. <laughs> I know. Sometimes I joke with our worship team that we're doing our job best when all of you are just slightly dissatisfied. <laughs> That's unity. Now, you know, I think the Lord wants better than that for us. He wants both joy and unity in our worship, joy and unity. And, and if you raised your hands a moment ago, I know how you feel. I know how you feel because I feel the same way. I have strong feelings too. People are passionate about music in church. They're passionate about music that glorifies God. Why? It's not because we want to be difficult or divisive. I'm assuming the best. It's because we know it matters. We know it matters. We know it inherently, even if we haven't ever heard it articulated. I was reflecting on this. I've, I've preached for about a decade now. I've led worship uh, since I was a teenager, about 20 years now, and I've never preached a message about singing, which is interesting. But it's so prevalent in the scriptures. We know how important it is, even if we've not talked about it and, and, and never articulated it. We know, why do we know that? We know that almost nothing in our Christian lives, in our walk with the Lord, inspires our love for God 
reminds us of what he's done in our lives. It unifies us with other believers, gives voice to our sorrows and our joys and our hopes like music does. Music is, is powerful. And, and so it's, it's not a coincidence that the songs that you favor in church or in your Christian life, the songs that you listen to and play in your homes, often they will correspond with the most significant spiritual seasons of your life. I think of my, my wife, for example, who the Lord really got a hold of her life at the end of high school. And so our playlist in our home is stuck on like early 2000s worship music. <laughs> I'm hoping she has some kind of new spiritual experience so we can listen to something else. But, but we are like that. Think about it. You are drawn to the, the kind of music, the kind of worship songs you sang when you first met the Lord or that were significant to you in seasons and trials of your life. Because they give voice to what we experience and, and what we're feeling. They testify to the goodness and glory of God. And music, like almost nothing else, for, for centuries has, and millennia has given voice to the experience of people. The songs that we sing are powerful. For thousands of years, people have sung songs. This is one of the, the common graces of God to humanity. It, music was his idea. And in his creation, he gave us the ability to, to make melodies that can express joy and sorrow and peace, even without words. But when the songs of the creation are directed toward their creator, when our music, when our singing is Godward, it is, it is fulfilling its intended purpose. When music and singing is Godward, it glorifies God. It changes us, and it testifies to the world of God's goodness, his faithfulness, and his love. Now, why are we talking about this? A few weeks ago, I, I told you uh, that we are looking at priorities right now in the season because as I had opportunity to get away and to be praying with the Lord and seeking the Lord, he, he brought to mind some priorities for our church. And it, it's just this, that as we love God more and more, and that's what we are made to do, to be in this love relationship with God, as we love God more and more, our life will overflow with an increase of prayer. We will be a praying church. A church that sees prayer not as our last resort, but our first priority and our last resort. The best thing that we can do. Prayer. A praying church. And as we relate to him in this personal relationship, it's not a one-way communication. It's two-way. We relate to him. He speaks to us. And that empowers us to serve his kingdom. He, he's, he's, he desires us to be a praying church. He desires, secondly, for us to be a praising church. A, a church that sings. I want my church to sing. I desire for the King's Chapel to be a singing church. And, and as we looked at prayer the last two weeks, we're going to spend this week and next week looking at praise in the scriptures. This is going to be all about praise with the steadfast hope that our lives would increase and overflow with praise toward God Almighty because he is worthy. And lastly, thirdly, that we be a proclaiming church. We have the best news in the world. Do you know that? Do you know that, that Christ came into the world to save sinners? Do you know you needed saving? And he came on a rescue mission for you, out of love for you. We have a story to tell. We have a, a message worth proclaiming. And he came to give us not just eternal life, but eternal relationship with him. And there's nothing better than that message. And so we are going to, by the grace of God, as we love him more and more, be a praying church, a praising church, and a, a proclaiming church. And we'll get to that more in the coming weeks. But this week, we need to talk about praise. Why? Because God is praiseworthy. He is a God worth shouting about. And as I was preparing this message, I was thinking about all the varied expressions of this that we see in Scripture. We see all these expressions of noise for the Lord. Praise with claps, play, praise with instruments, praise with voices. And here's the bottom line. 
Praise is loud. Do you know that? It's loud in the scriptures. I want you to to look at what it says in Psalm 33, just as an example in verses one through five. It says, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. How many of you have ever shouted for joy? Outside of like a a football game or something. Here, reflecting on, on the goodness and the steadfast love of God, he says, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. That's like an old school guitar. Make melody to him with the harp of 10 strings. Sing to him, some of you aren't going to like this, a new song. (laughs) Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast Love of the Lord. Shout for joy. That really stood out to me. Shout for joy. I wonder how many of us have ever taken that seriously, that command, that encouragement from Scripture to shout praises to God, to sing, to make loud and skillful sounds on instruments for God, to praise Him. Now, now some of us aren't skillful in singing. We're not skillful in instruments. At the very least, we can be loud, right? Ideally, both. God would have us love Him by being a a praising church, and that means a singing church. This is already a singing church. If you've been around our our church building during the week or out in our parking lot over the years, you know that this isn't a quiet place. It's not. Uh, Our founding pastor, Pastor Bill, he, he loves to sing. Whether he's walking the halls or locked in his office or just driving into the parking lot, you can hear him coming. You can hear him. And no, it's not always uh, worship songs to God. Sometimes it's some uh, Italian opera or something that he doesn't even understand. But his God-given love for music and singing has been a gift to many uh, people over the years. And I got to grow up in this environment and, and I have grown in a love and appreciation for God-glorifying singing. Uh, what can I say? Pastor Bill, our founding pastor, he's been like a father to me. <laughs> what he's demonstrated, what he's demonstrated is a spiritual connection to the unique way in which Christians have always glorified God. This is something that we've done from the beginning for now thousands of years. If you look around the world and compare Christianity to other faiths and religions, a lot of religions have common practices, holy scriptures and and gatherings for worship, but Christians uniquely sing together. This is something that is, is unique to us. What is also unique to Christianity, Christianity, of course, is that we know something different. We know that we are not saved from our sin by works of merit. We are not saved by, by being good enough or righteous enough. No, we are saved by a gift of grace, the grace of God as he poured out his righteous judgment on his very son, Jesus. That is what is different about us. But one of the ways we express gratitude and respond to the grace of God is that we are a singing people. Christians sing Together, and this is not really the tradition of any other faith. Now, I was told recently that some Eastern religions have seen from a distance the power of congregational singing to unify people and begun to incorporate that into their, their worship. But for Christians, this is no innovation. This is not a, a new idea. This is not something we came up with. But this is one of the uniquely uh, traditional responses of the people of God. It always has been. It always has been. This is something that that we have done since the beginning to declare that God is worthy, that he is good, and to sing that out loud in unity and joy. 
And so Christians carrying on the tradition of our Jewish foundation in Scripture, we are a singing people, and the Scriptures themselves are jam-packed with singing and song lyrics. I said this a few weeks ago, but it bears repeating. Did you know that, that about 15% of what is in your Scriptures had a tune? About 15% of this at some point had a tune. Many long since forgotten, many that we still get to learn in the future, but music is God's idea and it permeates the scriptures and all throughout scripture, God is magnified and glorified through song, particularly the gathered singing of his people. I think about this, from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden in an expression of this common grace, when Adam first meets his wife Eve, he sings, he, he bursts forth in poetic verse, he says, at last, bone of my bone." Flesh of my flesh, he begins to sing. We think of the Exodus as the people of, of God are led out of captivity in Egypt. And Moses and Miriam both sing in response. The longest book in the Bible, which one is it? It's the Psalms. It's a songbook. The longest chapter in Scripture is Psalm 119. In addition to the Psalms, there's other poetic and, and song books, the Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and others. In the New Testament, we see at the birth of Christ, uh, Mary sings. The angels sing. At the announcement of John the Baptist coming, Elizabeth sings. Zechariah sings. Not only were there songs in Christ's birth, but the resurrection community of the saints, the church, has always sung and will continue to sing in glory. We have the example of the, the disciples who are in prison singing in Acts 16.25, and the church commanded to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with your heart. That's Ephesians 5.19. And we have lyrics Song lyrics that we will sing together, recorded in Revelation 5 and 7 and 15. Christians sing. Are we always happy? Are we always happy? No. No. But whether in, in lament or in triumph, whether in sorrow or in joy, Christians have always turned their hearts, minds, soul, and strength to the goodness of God through song. And the wonder and power of music is that it can give voice to both the depths of sorrow and joy when words fall short. There's something so powerful about even in our darkness when we turn our eyes and our attention upward toward God who is worthy. So why do Christians sing? I'm going to give you three reasons why Christians sing, and then, and then as we come to a conclusion, what are we going to do? We're going to sing. So prepare yourself for that. But why do Christians sing? The first reason is obvious. Number one, Christians sing because singing glorifies God. It is an act of worship. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says this in verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, worship is much more than singing. We know that. It's, it's our life. We can serve to worship God. We can be in silence to worship God. We can give to worship God. But what the Christian knows is that we really can't give God anything other than our worship. It's all we have to give. And one of the best ways to express worship to God in Scripture is through song. As we realize it all belongs to him. What do I have to give him other than my adoration? We worship God because he's worthy. He's worthy. Think about what it is about God that is so good. Think about it right now. What stands out to you? Maybe it's his justice. Maybe it's his, his mercy that he created us, that he put breath in our lungs, that he sustains us, loves us, redeemed us, that he's with us. God is good. 
He is powerful. God is just. He is steadfast. He is immovable. He is faithful. He is the only God. And when words alone cannot express this, this goodness of God, music and lyrics can combine to express it on a deeper level that our words cannot even articulate. I want you to listen to these lyrics from from a, a famous hymn talking about the vastness of the love of God in song. It says this, Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill and everyone a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry? Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God is, is massive, beyond comprehension, beyond expression. And if praise is hard for us, and I know for many of you it is, if worship is hard, if singing is hard, that, then perhaps one of the things we need to, to look at is, is our view of God a God who is praiseworthy? Do we know the goodness and the love of God deep in our hearts and souls that, that would cause us to respond with praise toward him? Is God praiseworthy? Some of us struggle to worship God because we don't know him that way. Some of us struggle to worship God and and we struggle to praise him because we feel unworthy. We feel like we have to somehow get ourselves together. We we have to uh, be good enough in order to come into the presence of God with singing and with any kind of gladness. But what we see in scripture is broken people, when they begin to glimpse the grandeur and grace of God, they praise him and they can't help it. When life is overwhelming, when storms are crushing us, and some of you are walking through some awful stuff right now, I know it. When life is just closing in on us, what, what can be so tempting to do is, is to direct our eyes and our thoughts down and in. Down and in. And yet what we know is that that doesn't work. That doesn't help. That doesn't change anything. We're drawn downward and inward. If you've ever been depressed, you know what this is like. You, you just like can't help but think about yourself all the time, right? And you know it doesn't help. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. What my life experience and and. and The testimony of scripture will tell you is that when fearful circumstances seek to paralyze or polarize us, the the counterintuitive answer is to worship, is to to set our minds and our hearts to that which is above, to set our gaze on God alone because he is above our circumstances. And if we know that he holds our future, life is worth the living because he lives. Are you worried? Are you anxious? Are you downcast? Sing. Praise. Adore. Declare the might and the goodness and the glory of God. And it will change you. It will change you. You say, Mark, worship is more than singing, isn't it? Yes, it is, but it's not less than singing. So let's begin at the very least there. True worship, what it is, is simply awe and intimacy. It's God, you are praiseworthy. You are beyond me. It's awe in the presence of God. And it's also intimacy. He has bought relationship with him. He desires to be close with us. And not only is praise and God, we're singing, glorifying to God, but, but what happens as we praise and glorify with God is we get in touch with his goodness. We get to experience his goodness and get to fully enjoy him. Now, let me just ask you, how many of you struggle still with the idea of praise? 
With the idea of singing, you don't have to raise your hands. I know some of you do. It's a struggle for you. Would it be surprising to you that C.S. Lewis, the great Christian author and thinker, he struggled with it too, big time. And he couldn't understand it. He couldn't wrap his mind around why Christians sing. And what he struggled with was why does God need this? Like, why does God need this? Why does he need our praise? Have any of you ever wondered that? Like, if he's God, if he's self-sufficient, what does he need our singing for? And he struggled with that. And he, he thought, I don't understand this. Is God needy? Is God an egomaniac? Like, why would I praise him? And he prayed about it. And this is something that you can do. Any, some of you are wrestling with these really difficult questions and you won't ask them out loud, but you can. And you can ask God to give you insight and to give you wisdom. And he speaks. Like he'll, he'll reveal things in your life. And so C.S. Lewis is praying about this. He's reflecting on it. He's meditating on it. And he's like, God, I don't get praise. I don't understand it. And then he, he, the Lord revealed to him um, a truth about praise that he hadn't seen before. As he prayed, prayed and asked God to help him understand praise, he realized that when God... When God is glorified in our lives, when God's glory is maximized in our lives, that is actually when our lives are most satisfying, most delightful. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. He said it better than that. He says this. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. We get to to complete the enjoyment of God in our praise of him. He says, it is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment, listen to this, it's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Do you understand that? We get to to maximize our delight and enjoyment of God as we praise him. Praise is a gift to us as much as it is glorifying to God. Praise brings glory and honor to God. And we also begin to see that number two, singing changes us. It is a means of discipleship. There's a statement that's often attributed to to Plato. I don't think he actually ever said this, but it's attributed to him. He says, let me make the songs of a nation and I care not who makes its laws. Why? Why? Because we know that music and singing has this, this tremendous power for good or ill to shape our minds. So to love God with our minds will be to fill our minds with that which brings him glory. Scripture in song. R.W. Dale kind of... Spinning off of that particular quote, he says, let me write the hymns of the church and I care not who writes the theology. Why? Because you don't read theology, do you? Some of you do, I know. But even pastors, we have bookshelves full of theology that are there for for reference, right? We don't read our theology nearly as often as we sing it. And we internalize truth and doctrine through the songs that we sing. And as you sing it, you will either internalize the truth or you will internalize fiction as you sing. Romans 12 says this. It says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What you put in your mind matters. Colossians 3.16 says it this way. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In other words, there is a direct relationship to the depth of God's word in our hearts and the overflow of our lives in song. Singing expresses our affections for God, but it also shapes those affections. It it creates those affections in us. 
And I think sometimes we struggle to sing and we struggle to praise God because what we're singing just isn't how we actually feel. There's this very cynical statement that says that Christians don't uh, tell lies. We just sing them, right? Because how can I sing, I surrender all, all to Jesus, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give, when we actually have a death grip on our circumstances and on our life. And so, so there's a disconnect there, isn't there? And I would say, no, actually, there's not. Because what Christians are doing as we sing the truth, as we, we declare these things before God, is we are actually in that act surrendering, inviting God to come in and change us. Though we ourselves are false, though we're struggling, though we, we don't have it in us to bring it today in worship, as we do, as we rehearse what is true, as we declare what is true, it reshapes and renews our hearts and our minds afresh. It changes us as we worship. It changes our hearts and our minds. As I surrender all in song, my heart begins to move toward that becoming a reality in my life. I begin to declare what, what I want to be true of me and more and more it becomes true of me. Godward singing changes us and it also changes us not just as individuals but as a community. We'll talk about that more next week. How do we become this? How do we become men and women, families and a church that loves to praise God? How do we cultivate a, a lifestyle practically of praise? That's what we'll talk about more next week. But the third thing that I want you to see this morning is that singing testifies to the world. Singing testifies to the world. It is a draw to salvation. I'm going to invite the band up as, as we conclude with this point and then we begin to sing. But one of the most amazing aspects of being a Christian is this supernatural unity that exists within the global church. As Christians, it is not our ethnicity that unites us. It's not our culture that unites us. It's not our nationality that unites us. As Christians, we are not united by any of these things, not by political party affiliation, skin color, income, zip code, age, personality type. We are united not by looking side to side at the others around us to see how closely we compare to them. We are united, no, by looking up at the very same cross, at one Savior. We are united by the blood of Jesus shed for us, eyes up, voices up, hearts up. About a decade ago, I can remember I was driving around and uh, I was driving through the Centerville kind of area and I came up to an intersection and I looked and there was a crowd of people gathered together, all looking up into the sky. What did, what did that make me want to do? What is that? What are they looking at? I think it was the, the space shuttle was being flown over and, and so everyone's attention on that. But, but what was irresistible was the collective gaze of a crowd of people directed in one direction made me want to look. And that is what the unified praise and worship of God's people can do. There is something irresistible about the collection, collective attention and affection of a crowd of people. It draws others in. And this is what the church worshiping together does to a watching world. Ephesians 4, talking about our unity, it says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We are united and this is one of the, the blessings of our faith is that no matter where you've come from, we are united by the blood of Jesus. We are united by, by one spirit. We are united by what he has done. All the ransomed saints of God and one of the best pictures to the world of what is different about Jesus is the way he can bring together people that have no business being friends with one another 
in the unity of his spirit as we worship him. I think God wants more for us as a church. I think God would have us be a multicultural church, a multiracial church, a multi-generational church that is zealously unified, that is unrelentingly joyful in our praise together. There is power and there is unity in the joy of God's people as our minds, our hearts, our souls, our strength are all directed towards our King, King Jesus. What if we were known as that? A house of praise for all nations. What if we were known, not just here in Northern Virginia, but in the heavenly places as that kind of place, a picture of heaven on earth, the unity of the Spirit among God's people, no matter their background or walk of life. What would that look like? What would that sound like? Voices raised in loud, unified, Spirit-filled declaration of the excellencies of God. What a picture that would be to a world that's looking. They're like they've never seen, the world has never seen true unity, true love, true grace. But what if we as a church were so fixed on worshiping the King of Kings, on our eyes fixed on the cross of Jesus Christ, that others couldn't help but look? Do you want that? Do you want that? What if they followed our collective gaze up to see their salvation, our singing Savior on the cross? Why do I call him a singing Savior? Because on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus sang. We often overlook that, but in Matthew's gospel, when he's getting ready to face his greatest stress and strain, when he's going out to the garden to pray after eating with his close friends, the disciples, it says in Matthew's gospel that together they sang a hymn. He sings before going to the Mount of Olives to await his betrayal. Even as our dear Jesus is tortured and nailed to a wooden cross, as he's suffering and dying, do you know what comes to his mind? I wonder what would come to your mind. But what comes to the mind of our Savior Jesus is song. He cries out when he can't sing out the words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Song lyrics on the cross. A scripture that as we go and we look at that song in scripture, what it tells us is it's the suffering that Jesus is going through. And at the end, it says that the nations will look upon him and, and they will come and bow before him because he has done it. He has done it. And then he says in his dying breath, Psalm 31, again, the Psalms coming to his mind. He says, Lord, he says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. A verse that goes on to say, you've redeemed me. Oh Lord, faithful God. As Jesus bears our shame and our sin upon himself on the cross, as he exchanges his life for ours, he knows exactly what he's doing. And he directs our minds to the faithfulness of the Father, our rock and our fortress. He has done it. You have redeemed me. O Lord, faithful God. His dying breath has brought us life. I know that it is finished. So I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to sing. We're going to sing because he's worthy. We're going to sing to renew our hearts and our minds with truth and goodness. And we are going to sing in united testimony to the world of the Savior we serve, Jesus, our King. So let's sing right now.